We've made a transition in uh, the book of Isaiah. We've just come through the narrative passages and uh, just looking at the uh, Hezekiah's sickness and his recovery and then the interaction with the, uh, the envoys from Babylon. And then it seems as though it makes a, a, a dramatic shift from narrative, something like you might find in the books of Chronicles or Kings, and very close to that, makes a dramatic shift to this exalted prophecy, uh, a sort of poetry. Of course, I, I can't help hear this without hearing uh, strains of Handel's Messiah uh, in my mind, and uh, a beautiful passage that is given to God's people. But they are, as we've seen in the past and will continue to see, uh, these things are not, uh, are not uh, divorced from one another. The narrative and the, the prophecies here, this uh, almost uh, a song of God's comfort to his people. We come to this passage, one of the most beautiful, perhaps, in, in Scripture. It's, it's among those that stand out in their beauty. Um, there are a number of things that we'll look at, and, and I'm not going to try to tackle everything today. We're primarily looking at the first 11 verses, and uh, we'll continue in the next, probably the next couple of weeks, to look at this chapter. But here he comes with with words of comfort. And it's important for us to remember the context. The comfort would not be that comforting if you don't have the context uh, into which it was spoken. Remember where we're at. The envoys from Babylon came and the king of Israel, the king in Zion, the one who was a type of Christ as he was a fulfillment of, Of that promise to David that God would maintain a king on David's throne forever. So Hezekiah is part of that covenant promise. And as such is, is a type pointing forward to Christ. But what happened with the envoys from Babylon? He opened the land. Opened Jerusalem. Laid it bare and naked before the representatives of this pagan king. And of course, you have Isaiah's prophecy at that time. What did he say? All the, essentially, all that you've shown to these representatives will go to Babylon. It will all be taken away. The princes of Israel themselves, the princes of Judah, those who ought to have been in the line of the Davidic king, rather than having families in the line going on through them, instead they'll be carried away by the king of Babylon, even serving as eunuchs in his palace. A time of great difficulty was coming, a time of war, a time of exile, a time of suffering. Isaiah has been telling us this entire time of the sufferings that have been brought on rightly by the people of Zion. 
the citizens of Jerusalem, the people also of the northern tribes. Assyria had been a great enemy, caused much suffering. Lachish at this point is already burned. Its people have been taken captive. And now Jerusalem is on the chopping block. Over the last several days, we've seen just a little window from a great distance of what war looks like. Because of technology, we're able to have sort of up-to-date information, even from uh, the soldiers themselves on the ground. Um, We see that in, in, in without any covering, really, without any filter we're able to see a little bit of what war looks like, of what suffering looks like. Get to see a little window into the cruelty of man. And again, that's from a great distance, and it horrifies us, and it ought to. In the history of man, this has been the case, that we cause great suffering to ourselves as we reject the laws of God and refuse to walk in his ways. It's been the whole history of man. Even the church itself turning away from the ways of God and walking in the ways of man. As I was thinking about the the horrors of war and what a small taste it is that we have today. I was reminded of the 30 years war. 1618 to 1648, a long time ago. The war between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants, the Lutherans and the, and the Reformed fighting against the Catholics. It was a very difficult war, and as the name suggests, lasted for three decades. By the end of it, many of the towns had been destroyed. Many citizens in their millions had been killed either by the war itself or by the famine and the the disease that came along with the the raiding armies as they fed themselves off the land. Germany and many sections saw a population drop by 50 to 60% because of that war. Just one battle alone at the siege of Magdeburg, the Catholics under General Tilly laid siege to the city and the, the Protestant army was not able to reach the city in time. They were under uh, the command of Gustavus Adolphus. It was a city of approximately thirty to 25 to 30,000 people. And after the siege, once they army broke through, there were about 5,000 left of its inhabitants, and it's a question of whether it was a good thing to survive what happened to the survivors. Estimates range from 5 million to 11 million people who died in that war, many of them civilians, many of them non-combatants. There's a little bit of the picture of the evil of man and the the cruelty that we do to one another and even the church that 
often that even carries the name of Christ, turning away from God's ways, not showing mercy. That's just a little bit of what Israel suffered for their sins. God had told them this would happen. All the way back to Moses, this was laid out very clearly in graphic detail in Deuteronomy. This is what will happen if you serve other gods, if you will not walk before the Lord. God is giving you his light. He's giving you very mercifully his ways, his laws, what God is near to his people like our God, giving his laws to his people in Deuteronomy 4. This is great mercy. And rather than walking in God's ways, they turn away and they follow other gods. They sacrificed their children to Molech. They did all manner of of perverse worship along with the world. Immoral worship to pagan idols. Rather than walking in the ways of peace and having God's protection over them, instead they went the way of the world and suffered just like the world and were cruel like the world. We have that whole history. We've looked at it. In Isaiah itself, Israel, the northern tribes, coming against Judah, the southern tribe, killing, taking captive in their hundreds of thousands, enslaving them. That's the history of the church. Now you see a little bit. Now we have a little bit of the picture of where the church is at and into what context these words of comfort are spoken. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. This is why Israel, why the church, the Old Testament church, needed comfort because they were rightly under the judgment of God and their cruelty had come to heaven. Their idolatry. And through all of it, God had sent prophet after prophet, preacher after preacher to call them to repentance. And they, at every turn, they have denied God. He had said, trust in me, don't trust in this. And they it's almost as though you could look at it, have a, have a wall with a, a sentence written on it. God won't save us, but Ahaz will. And then just cross that off when Ahaz is done. God won't save us, but, but Egypt will. Won't we'll cross that one off. God won't save us, but Babylon will cross that one off. And it just goes down the line. They keep crossing off the list and they refuse to trust in God. They refuse to listen to him. They refuse to follow him. And each one of these things, these, uh, the men have failed, the countries have failed, their alliances have failed, their paying tribute has failed, everything has failed. And God has brought them to the point where there's nothing else they can look to. And he would be fully within his rights to cut them off and say, I'm done. And yet he speaks comfort. This is, listen to Hosea. This is, this is one of the prophecies against Israel, against the northern tribe, tribes. 
This is the severity of, of the preaching. Listen to this. this Hosea's wife, he had to wear, marry an immoral wife and, and have a family with her. And it was a living example of what Israel was doing for, to God. Uh, Hosea's wife conceived again and bore a, bore a daughter. And the, the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people and I'm not your God. That's the condition of the Old Testament church into which this prophecy is given. And it's, it's not just the people in the church. It's not just this specific condition. But even we see in that the reference that those familiar words, all flesh is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. We, under, we know that. But here he gives it, it's, it's people. It's people that are as grass, as the flower of the field. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. We're dying. Death reigns among us. Isn't that what we just saw in chapter 38? Of Isaiah. King Hezekiah, the good king, had failed, and he too was failing as grass. He was like the wilting flower about to fall. He had he was dying. God extended his life, but they couldn't put their hope in Hezekiah because he was dying. He too was the flower that falls. And there's there's uh, the cry of the people of those. Those who are faithful, who love God, and they see this, and it's difficult to watch. And then you begin to see all of this this judgment and, and cry out, God, help us. God, save us. We need your mercy. You can look at some of the Psalms. Just one example. Psalm 77, will the Lord spurn forever? Never again be favorable. Has his steadfast love and uh, forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has his anger shut up his compassion? There's the prayer of a believer that is seeing the judgment of God. And it all looks bleak. Where is God? Or even that familiar Psalm 137. Weeping by the rivers of Babylon. Those people that had gone into exile. That is the hopelessness of of the human condition. And it's recognized in this. That's the context. And then we come to the words of God speaking to his people. And this is where hope is in our hopeless estate. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. God speaks tenderly to his people. Even calling them my people. 
is a great mercy. You hang on to that. He preserves his church. He has not forgotten his loving kindness. He hasn't forgotten to show mercy, but instead he remembers her. He remembers his church. And he calls them his own. And he commands his messenger to speak comfort. Because of the rebellions, because of the sinfulness, he has to speak the judgment. Because of the refusals, the idolatry and all of that, he speaks the judgment, but he comes with words of great tenderness and mercy. He says, if you look at verse 11, speaks of shepherding his people like a flock. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Down to the very weakest among them, he would show mercy. Now, who is God speaking to in this? My people, the remnant. We've seen this again and again popping up, especially in those earlier chapters of Isaiah. There is a remnant. There is a large number of people who went away and did not turn back to God. They, they just were absorbed into the pagan nations, absorbed into wherever Assyria brought them. Or uh, There were many who remained obstinate and just went away. But there is a remnant. God kept for himself a people. And he always has. He's preserved them. And so he speaks to the remnant here. He speaks to the church. He speaks comfort to them. Here it's not directly stated that this is the remnant, but you see him speaking of them. And and we've seen it, that even the picture of, of being brought along the way and the rejoicing of the people. And so this this speaks to to the church. Assyria is obviously not his people, even though he did show mercy to them through the prophet Jonah. Egypt, and you see Babylon, and there are points of mercy, but to his church he speaks directly. The remnant would be preserved. And this is looking ahead to the Babylonian uh, invasion and and the exile into Babylon. So this is, uh, we're starting to get into similar territory uh, as Jeremiah, for example, where there they're going to be taken into exile. It's, it's a, almost, almost, I think of it almost as a fall uh, parallel to being cast out of Eden uh, in Genesis. Adam and Eve cast out. They have this very good land and by their sins are cast out. And of course, that's the first fall. But then God brings Israel into the promised land and then they're cast out. But there's the promise that they will be brought back and this is we're going to see more and more of Babylon in uh, in chapter 45 you see Cyrus named uh, specifically as uh, the one who would bring them back from uh, from the exile uh, a pagan king that God would appoint anoint to be his servant uh, to bring the people back and you have the for example in in uh, Chapter 46, the gods of Babylon are, uh, are mentioned. And so we'll see more of this. But God is reminding his people, even before they go into exile, of comfort. 
And so for the people of that day, for the church in that day, they would carry this with them. The hope of return, the hope that God is comforting. And even when they're going through these trials, he has not forgotten his people. They still will trust in him and he will save them. There's still joy. There's still salvation in him. This is really the, uh, a similar context and, and application to what is given. We have, there's that one verse from Jeremiah that is on so many coffee mugs and plaques. If you go into a, a, a Christian bookstore and you'll see there's that one verse in Jeremiah that's, that's picked out. And it's, it's kind of given a, a, a sort of a feel-good uh, flavor to it. Jeremiah 29, you know the, the, the one verse, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. And it's kind of picked out and we, it gives warm fuzzies that God has a plan for your life. What was the context in which Jeremiah was speaking? The verse before Listen to Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fill the promise to you, to you, my promise, and bring you back from this place. He's talking about the Babylonian exile. Many would die. They would go into Babylon as prisoners. They would remain there. And of course, then all of that uh, Old Testament history of Daniel Serving in, in his friends, Shananiah, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Serving there and, and the threat of death constantly over them if they wouldn't bow down to the idol, if they wouldn't obey everything that the king, even threat of death because of what the, the magicians uh, couldn't answer. A constant threat. And then later in the Persian, uh, with the Persians, we, you have the book of Esther and all of that is going to happen. And in the middle of that, God says, remember, to, not just to the individuals, but to the church, I have a plan for you. I am going to bring my church through all of this exile, through all of this suffering. I'm preparing the way for the Messiah and the good promises, the better promises in him. I'm preparing the way. I have plans for you. I have a future. The church will go on. I will preserve it. And it won't disappear. Instead, it's going to expand across the whole world. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. The nations will be given to this Christ as his inheritance. Even through this unworthy church that had brought the exile upon themselves. So it's the verses here speak comfort, but comfort at a much deeper level than merely, well, God has, loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, just in a, a sort of a superficial way. And God is speaking here. here he gives his word to, to the people who are about to go into exile, words of comfort, reminds them of his love, but he's pointing them off into the future. So we have the... A little bit of the where and the and uh, the when, but then also of whom does this speak? 
A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is a comfort. God makes a way in the wilderness and here you have tones of, of the exodus. God bringing his people and, and even John Calvin in commenting says, look at God here. If you see the exodus here, God is identifying with his people as he says, make the way for the Lord in the wilderness. As he identifies with his people, he goes with them and that there is no barrier to his way. That no, no landscape, no rough place or mountain can, uh, can up, hold him up. And this was a great comfort to those going into exile, but it wasn't the end of the story. It wasn't just a poetic way of speaking about God's care for the church and bringing them back from exile. It has application to that, but in a limited way. That's why I wanted to read for you from the, from the gospel writers, because they cite this very passage as what? John the Baptist's call. He is the one who is preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness. And you see John the Baptist here in a much more literal way. In the wilderness, preparing the way, not just for God to save his people, but for God himself incarnate. Where Isaiah has pointed forward with his words and his prophecies to Jesus far off, the Messiah far off. John points with his hand and says, there he is. He's the one. This is the Lord, the one who I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. I am the voice crying in the wilderness. I am the one preparing the way of the Lord. John the Baptist given a place of great glory and eminence, even though he's a man dressed humbly in camel's hair and leather belt with a humble diet. He is an exalted man given a, an exalted place as the herald of the Messiah, the Christ himself. And of course, this section of Isaiah, as it turns our attention to the Babylonian exile, is going to open the way in a much more grand scale to God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Of course, the high point being Isaiah 53, where it speaks of the suffering servant. This one who is coming, the Lord who is coming, is going to come and save his people through his own suffering. By his stripes, they would be healed. So this is, this is not just a comfort that God doesn't forget, that, but that God is bringing salvation in, in a much greater way than they could ever really have imagined. They had seen what God had done through Moses, but they weren't really expecting, even though they, everything was given in Isaiah to tell of who the Christ would be, still, it's unexpected. That God's salvation would come through the suffering of God incarnate. And that when he speaks of the pardoning of iniquity, it would be through his own blood. 
And so you see there's a building comfort. God doesn't forget his people. They belong to him. Even through whatever sufferings they must go through in this life, they're not forgotten. They have his words of comfort. He speaks tenderly to them. It's not just that. He suffers. Not God in his nature as God, but God coming and being incarnate. Born of Mary, as we confessed in the, in the creed. Born of Mary, under the law, keeping the law, suffering in the place of his people, dying. This is the comfort that God had, was preparing for. The way was being prepared so that the gospel would come and that the glory of the Lord would be revealed even through the suffering servant. And we're coming up to the servant songs. So we see this this development of who the Messiah is. Here it says that he comes as the shepherd. Let's just spend a moment on the, the shepherd imagery. This is rich imagery in the scriptures. The good shepherd. Of course, we have we know the Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So this is not an unfamiliar thing for God to speak of himself as a shepherd. But again, the shepherding language brings up Exodus, tones of the Exodus. Psalm 77, I read a a couple of verses earlier from that. Uh, At the end of Psalm 77, he says, you led your people like a flock. By the hand of Moses and Aaron, God leading his people. And so you see that shepherding imagery coming in. God leading his people from Egypt, from death into the promised land through the wilderness. And this is, this is imagery that stays throughout the whole scripture. That picture of Egypt is death through the wilderness into the promised land. And of course, we speak of that today. The life on this earth is wilderness those who are in Christ have been brought out of Egypt out of death we're being brought through the wilderness and then we cross the river into the promised land this is the work of God himself to shepherd his people the shepherd is also the picture of the king it reminds us of the Davidic covenant in 2nd Samuel when they were Looking to David as king, the people said in times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out, speaking to David, brought out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd to my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. The shepherd is the defender king. He's the king who defends his people in that uh, great prophecy of where the Messiah would be born in Micah. Listen to this. It's, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is Micah 5 and then verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. 
Of course, this is brought up again in, in Matthew chapter 2 when they're looking, the Magi are looking, where is the Christ to be born? We've seen his star in the east. It says, and they quote, Do you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, from, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel? You see the strength of this shepherding language. When God gives comfort, he says, I am going to lead you. I am going to protect you. And of course, then there are all of those other pictures that we see in the New Testament of, of Jesus as the one, the shepherd who leaves the 99, seeks out the one who has gone astray. You have the picture there, one of the most beautiful pictures and comforting pictures in John 10 of Christ. He says, I am the good shepherd. Give my life for the sheep. No one will snatch them out of my hands. You see the care that God gives. And when he gives this comfort. It's a solid comfort. Based on the promises of God. We've seen the fickleness of man. We've seen the untrustworthiness of man. Even the good godly king Hezekiah wasn't worthy of their trust. He couldn't even keep himself alive. Those 15 years that were added through his prayers, yes, but where did they come from? From God alone. All flesh is grass. Withering and falling like the flower of the grass. But the word of our God abides forever. And so that's where God sets our comfort, our hope upon his word. He says, I have done these things. I am doing these things. I will shepherd my people. I will protect my people. Jesus says, I will make sure that all of my lambs are brought into the fold. And of course, this gets into New Testament territory in Isaiah where he's, all the earth shall see the glory of the Lord. And We're talking about gospel here. And so the gospel going out to the nations and and it, it brings us such confidence and hope because here we are. The glory of the Lord has been being made known over all the intervening years. Christ has come. The suffering servant of Yahweh has come. He has suffered. He took those stripes And so we can have confidence in the word of the Lord that stands forever. And when we hear his words of comfort, they ring true for us today. He will not abandon his church. He will not leave his people. He is the good shepherd who even carries the lambs in his bosom. This is... Even as as the promises of this passage are great and glorious, that the living God, and of course we we didn't even touch the part that speaks, that compares the living God to the gods of this world and shows the greatness that nations are like the dust on the scales that don't even move it one inch. We didn't even get into that, but this is the God who's speaking comfort to the weakest. How great is the sin of ignoring this word? How great is the sin of ignoring this Messiah? 
That God the Father would send the Son, His beloved, the one who hadn't done any evil, but had been with the Father forever, sharing perfect fellowship and love always. And He sends Him for this group of people that had cast Him off. How much greater is the sin of rejecting Jesus today? We have God's words of comfort. We have Jesus's words of comfort. Him giving himself for the world. Him giving himself for the sins of the people. People who are completely undeserving. Dying, rising, interceding. How great is that sin? If we reject Jesus Christ, who's freely been offered to us. Here you have a sure hope, a sure confidence. This is where you put your trust. This is where you put your hope. In God, in the Messiah he's given, in his sure word, the word that will not fade. From the one who has made all things. Sustains all things. So listen to Isaiah. Listen to John as he points to Christ and says, this is the one. I am preparing the way for the Lord in quite a literal way. Listen to them, to Isaiah speak to you of the everlasting joy of the ended warfare of peace eternal peace of lasting salvation. Find your comfort and your joy in the lasting promises of God that are all brought to their fruition, to their amen in Christ Jesus himself. Let's pray. Lord our God, We are not worthy of these promises of comfort, of these promises of forgiveness and everlasting joy. But you have given them. Help us by faith to cling to them. May we never look to ourselves for salvation, to our works. May we never look to another, but to the Christ that you have given To God incarnate, given for us. The one for whom John prepared the way. Lord, we thank you that you speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Our Lord Jesus is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Lord, thank you for this precious passage, these great and precious promises. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.